Moses, the way of an intercessor. Lesson 7 Father, we thank you once again for your word, which is eternal. And we thank you for all of the principles that are laid therein for our admonition. We ask, Father, again today that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would indeed please, Holy Spirit, help me to expedite and, and bring um, attention to the scriptures that you want me to bring attention to, that we would major on what you want us to major on. In the name of the Lord, we thank you again today for your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And I ask again, Father, that you would grant me that I might be able to see what is the hope of my calling and that all of us might be able to pray that from our hearts. Father, please help us to see what is the hope of our calling Amen. and what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance that is in us now as believers, that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of the power that is to us who believe. Again, you said it was the very same. It's according to the same power that you wrought in Christ Jesus when you raised him from the dead. So, Lord, again today we thank you that that even that, maybe especially that, is growing and growing and growing and expanding in our consciousness and in our thought and in our spirit and in our brain that the very same spirit that raised your son from the dead dwells in us now. That he is our teacher, he is our guide, he is our comforter, our advocate, our strengthener, our standby. He is everything. He is the one whom we commune with now. So, Holy One, we do invite you. We invite your precious and your unique anointings. We ask that you would teach us, that you would open up and reveal to us. You're the revelator. You're the one that shines the light. You're the one who illumines things so that they can be seen. So, Holy Spirit, we desperately want you to feel welcome in our midst because without you, all we'll do is read words. So for each of us as individuals, I can't make others' decisions for them, but Father, we, we choose to yield to you, Holy Spirit. I yield to you, Holy Spirit, as best as I understand how to. I may not be able to do it well, but I'm trying to learn how to, Father. Please help me learn more and more how to yield to you, how to hear from you. So help us, Father, as we continue now. In the name of your Son, Jesus we set about to, to learn from you. Amen. The intercessor must have a, an established heart. The heart and soul must be guarded so as not to drift away from their first faith. In other words, that first word, you know, the principle of first love, I have somewhat against you because you left your first love. In other words, that first that first encounter where the Lord spoke to you about taking this responsibility on in the first place to pray for a given subject or a given situation. The heart and soul must be guarded so as to not drift away from their first faith. Also, without any doubt, one of the keys to successful intercession is the revelation of possessing, possessing your soul, which each of us has to do, possessing your soul with patience. The servant of the Lord, Paul to Timothy, said, must be patient. Or else, I said, you will be finished before you even start. Again, because we're in this for a while. Almost nowhere in history do you find a war won from one cannon shot or one battle. As said before, we often have to prepare for a long-continued siege. That's scripture out of Micah. When it comes to intercessory prayer, we cannot allow ourselves to be moved by every bad report or even a, every good report for that matter. We're called to see things through to their culmination. Again, if we're talking about intercession in its purest form, I just always feel the need to reiterate this over and over again. I do not want people getting into semantic wars. Semantics, remember, is just you know, the usage of words. 
I don't want us to argue over particular words. And again, why I'm saying that is because everybody will find themselves in a place where they find themselves interceding for situations. But remember, I've been harping on this for the last 16 hours. I'm teaching this from another angle because I'm trying to look at the literal meaning of an intercessor biblically, which again was somebody who was a bit different than just a prayer warrior. We're all, we all go to war in particular situations in prayer, per se. We all find ourselves given to certain prayer tasks. But intercession, again, if we're honest and you go to scriptures where somebody called God drops something into your spirit that you cannot escape from. Uh, in other words, it's not something you choose. I think I'll pray about this today. And tomorrow I'm going to pray about that. Intercession, I repeat, a real call to intercession is, is something that comes and is planted from heaven into the spirit of an individual that, I repeat, you wake up with and you go to bed with. So even in the midst of that, like I said, though, we have the same opportunities as anybody else to faint in our minds and want to run from the battle as opposed to run to the battle. So in Psalm 112, we find these wonderful scriptures that I have on the outline. Like I said, rather than go to the scriptures, I'm going to just read the ones we have on the outlines. In Psalm 112, verses 6 through 8 in the Amplified Bible, you'll see here it says, He will not be moved forever. The uncompromisingly righteous, the upright, and right standing with God shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is firmly fixed, trusting, leaning on, and being confident in the Lord. His heart is established and steady. He will not be afraid while he waits to see his desire upon his adversary. That's the reason I pause there is because that's how the Lord dealt with me many years ago. He said, your problem is, he says, you grow fearful during the waiting period. While you're in the waiting room of prayer is when you have the opportunity to be, have your mind deluged with all the thoughts of failure, all the thoughts, all the doubts, you know, the things that, you, that, that hell would love you to live in. I was reading an article yesterday, and this lady said something I thought was interesting. She said the Lord spoke to her about why she had such a weak Christian experience, and the word he spoke was this. He said, you have been living in your doubts and only visiting your faith. I want you to live in your faith knowing that you'll momentarily at times visit doubt. I thought that was a very good statement. Your problem is you've been living in your doubts and only visiting your faith. Whereas what my desire is that you live in your faith and only Momentarily, I know that you're human, so you'll visit your doubts. So, you know, this is why we fight the good warfare of faith. And again, <laughs> grow weary with me if you will, but faith cometh by hearing. Amen. And hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing. It's a multiple usage word. By that I mean it means a constant repetition of. It doesn't say faith comes by having heard one time. So you have to put yourself in the arena where you're constantly listening to that which builds your faith. Because the truth of the matter is, remember, every day you are listening to something. You're being spoken to by the circumstance. The mountain is speaking to you. And again, if you don't speak to your mountain, the mountain will speak to you. So intercession is a situation where we, again, take hold of this thing. And like, again, Isaiah 62, take hold of the Holy One and give Him no rest until Jerusalem be established, until the job is done. So from the word fixed, it says, the heart, my heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. There's just a couple little word studies I'm going to show here. The word fixed, this is from uh, the TWT. The word fixed says, this root occurs with its derivatives more than 288 times, but I just want you to read the part that I have in bold. The root meaning of this word is to bring something into being with the consequence that its existence is a certainty. I'll read it again. The root meaning is to bring something into being, to have a fixed heart, an established heart, a prepared, a made ready, a certain, a right heart. My heart is fixed, the Bible says. My heart is fixed, he said, the psalmist, David. My heart is fixed. I have 
fixed my heart here. I have taken my heart and nailed it to this truth. My heart is fixed. It means, the root meaning again is to bring something. It's actually that which brings something into being with the consequence that, with the consequence that its existence is a certainty. In other words, as I was trying to communicate earlier, I don't know how to say this other than just say it like this. It's only the prayer which is of faith that heals the sick. Uh, I don't want to get into some doctrinal argument about that, but what I'm trying to say is this. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. If there's any sick among you, I'm, I'm quoting, of course, from 1 John, but it says, if there, is there any sick among you, call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint you with oil. They'll pray the prayer of faith, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. But I want you to catch the spirit of it, because what the scripture actually says there is the prayer which is of faith. And I'm saying that in context here because your heart being fixed, like I said already, you have to guard your heart constantly. Proverbs says, you guard your heart above all that you guard, above all that you guard, because out of it proceed the issues of life. And I repeat, we fight the good fight of faith. You have, it is a war. It is a war to stay in the arena of faith because things bump, nudge, collide, slam, use every adjective you want to into your life on a daily basis to kick you out of the pitch where faith reigns and get you into the pitch where doubt and unbelief reigns. That's the common truth for all of us, isn't it? No matter what the area is. So nevertheless, the Word of God tells us there is this ability, there is this place where you can have your heart fixed. And again, I'll relate to Moses back in Numbers, up in Numbers, we haven't even got the Numbers, we'll get to one of those before we finish today, where again, the people have you know, complained and murmured against him, and we all know the story of when the plague was released because of their murmuring and complaining, how God's instruction was to build this pole and create this bronze serpent and put this serpent upon a pole, and he said, whoever in Israel, and I'll quote it again from the Amplified, it says, whoever continues to stare at that brazen serpent, which is a type of Christ, you know, who became sin for us. Whoever, it says, continues to stare at that with a steady, absorbing gaze shall live. And this is simply the key through all of our Christian experience. It's the steady, steady, absorbing gaze that causes you to live. So hell's job is distraction. Uh, you know, uh, nothing new here, but we have to see it. What consistently distracts you? That's what your first uh, weapon needs to be pointed at. You need to kick that out of your life. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. In other words, if that thing is causing the, the real offense, the hindrance that's keeping you from going forward, cut the thing off, even if it's for a while. You know what I mean? If you are so hooked on television that you can't, you know, live uh, 35 minutes without thinking what's going to be on TV tonight, unplug the sucker and throw it out in the front street for a while. Whatever it takes, I'm saying for a season until you can discipline yourself to say, that is not going to lord it over me. It will be a servant to me. I will not be a servant to it. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be. But again, you see, we're talking about intercession. We're talking about when something strikes you and you realize you're part of God's plan in this, which is intended to produce humility in you, not pride. If God you know, wants to use you, that should humble you. This is why the moment people start advertising to everybody about how they're so specially called of God to pray, I mean, if they talk about that so much, you know, they're probably disqualified because they're really looking for recognition. If you're called of God to pray, you'll just pray. <laughs> you won't care if anybody knows. You won't care if you have a title. You won't care if you have a label or a business card that says Chief Intercessor of London. <laughs> All of that is just gone. You don't care because you don't seek approval of men. Uh, your reward will come from heaven because you're tied to something bigger than your flesh. So it's important that we have an established a fixed heart. In the New Testament in Hebrews 13, 9, 
the Amplified Bible, that verse says, Do not be carried about by different and varied and alien teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established and ennobled and strengthened by means of grace, God's favor and spiritual blessing, and not to be devoted to foods, to rules of diet or ritualistic meals, which bring no spiritual benefit or profit to those who observe them. And again, he's just saying it's good for the heart to be established in those things of the Spirit of God. But all through Scripture, like I said, I'm going to have to move quick. All through Scripture, you find all these statements about this. Next page, point C, the word established in uh, that passage there in Hebrews, the Greek word, you'll see it up there. It means, quote, to cause something to be known as sure and certain. To be firm or established in belief, Luanita's Lexicon. It says it's used of men who were made steadfast and constant in soul. Some of our heroes of the past, these are what we're talking about. So we have the same right today. We can expect this. I tell you, you hang around God, who is pretty constant, by the way. He is constantly good, constantly loving. You'll find yourself becoming far more anchored to truth and to faith than you are to doubt. God's covenant, point two, is forever imprinted upon his heart. The same needs to be true regarding our own heart. The covenant we have with him must be indelibly cut into our hearts so that it can never be erased. Psalm 105, 8 in the Amplified says, He is earnestly mindful of his covenant, and forever it is imprinted on his heart, the word which he commanded and established to a thousand generations. I mean, isn't that incredible? Really, I mean, can, you, can you actually hear that? He is earnestly mindful of his covenant. And it is forever imprinted on his heart, the word which he commanded and established to a thousand generations. This is why God helped us to know the covenant. God only works through the covenant. Hallelujah. I mean, if we would just, that's why when you come, when he sees, I, that's why I always quote that verse out of Ephesians, where it says, if you're a stranger to the covenant, and I take a little bit of liberty there when I teach on it, but, you know, in context, but it says, if you're a stranger to the covenant, he said, you are as good as without God in this world and without hope. Because you see, if you don't know the covenant, if you don't know his, his agreements, if you don't know his, his government, as it were, if you don't know the document, well, see, that's the only thing God meets us through. Jesus Christ himself being the, the token, the, the Passover lamb, the, the way that, you know, he's, he's the one who, it's the blood that made the covenant. And so if you're a stranger to it, if you don't really understand the covenants of promise, then you see you're only coming to him through hope or through, I, I don't know for sure, but when you do know the covenant, that's what we're going to see throughout Moses. Moses would come through the covenant. And see, God, this is what upsets a religious mind, but God is obligated because, you see, God will never deny his own side of the coin. What I mean is God will not allow himself to be proven unfaithful. You have to understand all of the worlds, remember? It says all the worlds in Hebrews. It says we, by faith we understand that the worlds themselves were framed by the word of God so that what we see was, not made, by, was made by things that we do not see. But it says in the, in the Greek that the worlds were framed, fashioned, equipped for their intended use and put in order by the word of God. And that they're being suspended. The whole, all, all of creation, it says, is upheld by the word of his power. Now, hear what that means. All of creation is upheld by God's word. If one word of God's covenant was to fail, the stars would fall out of their orbit. But they won't, because God's word will never fail. He is sworn by his own self, by two immutable things. God cannot lie, you know, and, and by the fact that he's taken an oath to this. I mean, God, it's amazing. But it's amazing, you know, that God himself came down on our level, actually even though it was a heavenly principle, and took an oath. God, you know, as if God had to take an oath because he's God, but he, he wanted to do this so that our minds could comprehend he's taken an oath. 
Again, today, oaths don't mean as much. Covenants, contracts, like they say when I teach on covenant, people say contracts are made to be broken and they laugh about it. But that's not the way of heaven. But God stepped into it, like it says here, this thing is forever imprinted upon his heart. This word which he has commanded to a thousand generations. Hallelujah. This is why you see you can have great faith when you come to him through the covenant. Say, Father, it is written. And you see, this is why prayer is so powerful because you find yourself not, it's not a matter of arm wrestling God to get him to do something. We don't arm wrestle God into submission. No, we have things being withheld from us because of the prince of this world, the darkness that's in this world. But it's only when we aggressively agree and come to the truth of the covenant, you see, that that means God and man come into agreement. And when God and you come into agreement, hell has to back off because hell only has one power, and that's deception. That's the way it is. It's, again, too many scriptures. You know, I preached a little bit here on Sunday, but Hebrews 2, how God himself, because we are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself partook of flesh and blood, that he might bring to naught and destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And either his ministry, either Jesus' work was a completed work or it wasn't. But see, this is why you have to go back to Scripture and you have to say, you know, since the Bible says Scripture can't be violated, that's either the truth or it isn't. Well, Jesus Christ, in other words, paid the fullness of prices. That's what it says. He destroyed him that had the power of death. It, one of the Greek words that's used actually in Ephesians for, for, in a similar passage where it had this, you know, well, not in Ephesians, had, you know, had the God of this world known he never would have crucified the Lord of glory. But the, where the Bible says that he spoiled principalities and powers, it says that he dealt him, he dealt him, you know, he dealt him this strong blow. The word is para, paralysis, where we get the word paralyze. And what it says is that basically what God did through Jesus Christ dealt Satan a paralyzing blow. He paralyzed him. And I had somebody paint a picture of that many, many years ago to me when I was first saved, and they were sharing about how, you know, if there was somebody that was paralyzed from the neck down sitting in a wheelchair, but, you know, had a screaming voice, and, but you didn't know about it, you didn't know the guy was paralyzed, and somebody tells you so-and-so has says, when you walk in the room, he's going to kill you. When you walk in the room, he's going to beat you to death. When you walk in the room, it's going to be the, he said, it's the last day on earth for you. You're going to die. And this world, just whatever. And you have no idea who said this. And so you can get kind of freaked out and scared. But then you walk into the room and you're kind of fearful of who this guy is. And you say, well, who is the guy that said all this stuff? And they point over to this fellow. And it's a guy that's paralyzed from the neck down. And he's in a wheelchair. Well, that kind of changes your attitude. Because though he's screaming about what he's going to do, you know, there's some part of you that you don't know what to think because all of a sudden you're in it, but he's paralyzed. Now what he can do is scream at me, yell at me, intimidate me, but he's paralyzed. So all I can, all I can suffer from is the fact if I never actually confront him, because if I don't confront him, I don't see that he's paralyzed. So most Christians spend the rest of their life intimidated by the, by, the, by the intimidation of hell. But God's covenant is forever imprinted on his heart. He is earnestly mindful of his covenant and forever it is imprinted on his heart, the word which he commanded and established to a thousand generations. So I put a question, and this is, you can fill this out later, have a thought about it. What can we do to assure ourselves of acquiring and maintaining an established heart? And like I keep saying, you need to pray and ask God to give you your own, as it were, mechanism, you know, of, of remembrance, whatever it is that will provoke you to guarding your own heart. Like I said, you need to come into some form of personal discipline, whether it be through a devotional time in the morning, the afternoon and the evening, or something where you separate yourself unto God and, and you go through a little checklist for a while. And again, you see, the problem is when we teach this stuff is we don't want anybody to get under law like I keep saying, but the point is at first everything starts with instruction. It doesn't get to revelation until it comes through instruction in most cases. What I mean by that is that's why you start off doing things almost clinically. I have a, you know, like I said, I have my yellow pad. I write things out. I do this at 9 o'clock in the morning. I do this at 12 o'clock. I do this at 4 in the afternoon. I do this thing. That's how, you know, maybe people start out in the beginning. But you see, if you'll just keep riding that horse after a while, 
you won't have to have the pad. You won't have to have the time slots because the time slots will be in your spirit and the words on the pads will be in your spirit and it will become a way of life. I mean, you know, teaching on habits, Mike Murdoch, whoever you want to study from, they say habits, you know, that you develop a habit in 21 days. Anything you do every day for 21 days, if you do it religiously, can become a habit very, very quickly. You just have to discipline yourself to do it. So 21 days is not a big deal. That's three weeks. You know what I mean? Just, but it's a start. Just do it. Now, the next page, patience, the need of patience. Now, this is an incredible, even the thought that I can teach on patience. And next, I need to be very patient to teach on this. <laughs> patience is a critical issue to be understood in any area of the Christian walk. Intercession is no different. We're consistently instructed throughout the scriptures to the need for patience. Particularly in the Greek, we find two definitions of patience that reveal much. Almost, well, there's two major Greek words that are used throughout all scripture. They're hupomene and makrothemia. But these are actually just some of the word definitions. Hupomene and some of the references. Hupomene means, uh, it comes from hupo, which means under, and mino, which means to abide. The word means cheerful or hopeful endurance and constancy. Cheerful constancy. In most of the books, when you look it up, and you'll see something that's actually been transliterated literally from the Greek when the word hupomene is there in English, it'll say cheerful constancy. I was cheerfully constant in the midst of this trial. Right? Patience. Now the other word is macrothemia. The word macro means to be long in place or time, and thumos means passion or fierceness, as in breathing hard. Passion or fierceness. In other words, you put the two together, it means to be passionately or fiercely attached to, some, to, to, to being in a place for a long time. Now, literally, it means I have here the same word is translated long-suffering. Literally means to be long-spirited. Have you ever heard about people that had a short fuse? Well, I don't know how you can figure it out, but people that, the opposite of that, to have a, a long Spirit, a forbearing spirit, long spirit. It's long suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy and is used of God. Then Vine says, patience is the quality. This is macrothemia. Patience is the quality that does not surrender to circumstances, or succumb under trial. It is the opposite of despondency and is associated with hope. Now, the servant of the Lord must be patient. When it comes to prayer, my friends, like I said in the beginning of this lesson, hardly any time in history will you find a war that was won with one shot. Now, prayer, the very the whole issue of intercession, I mean, the whole issue of prayer, let's face it, like I said last week, we are you know, we're the, we're the, we are the generation, we are the age that does not know, as they say in business, as they say about credit cards, whatever, we are the generation of people that do not know how to delay gratification. We're the people that want to feel it now, don't we? We're the people that want the deliverance now. I want to feel something now. I want the result now. I want patience and I want it now. And again, we use the analogy of McDonald's. That's really the way we are. It's always humorous when you talk about we drive up to one window. It's the prayer window. Father, this is what I want. And you drive to the next window. And if you're not served in 90 seconds, you're upset with the people. Because McDonald's gives you this guarantee that they're supposed to have your food, I forget what it is, 90 seconds or, or two minutes after you order. At least that's the way it is in the States. So we have this McDonald's mentality when it comes to prayer. Because that's the generation that we've grown up with. Computer, access, whatever. The, the faster, the better. Let's fit. The, the faster, the better. I want that information now. I mean, you know, you go, I remember when you were thrilled to bits with the 96, you know, 9600 baud modem. And, the, you know, when they, for that matter, 2400. I can remember, I'm so old. <laughs> I remember, you know, 2400 bits per Per minute, yeah. I remember 24, actually, I remember 1,200. That's really bad. <laughs> I remember 1,200 bits per minute. I remember, you know, where you have to type into a bulletin board thing before they had all the stuff, before even Windows was out. We still work with DOS. 
and you, you were just thrilled that you could actually attach yourself to something in another state, and an hour later, you know, a dot image would come, and you'd go, you know, it's amazing, you know, how you're just blown away by that. And, you know, I mean, today, if you don't have a one megabit stream coming from some high internet access, I mean, you're bummed out, you know, if you have to work on the net a lot. And so, I mean, think about, I mean, like my mom, my dad, you know, growing plants, growing vegetables and stuff like this. I mean, my, it was my dad's greatest joy to, to, you know, to raise corn and to raise strawberries and, like I said, peach trees, apple trees, orange trees. We had all this fruit and all this stuff. My dad had a green thumb. But, I mean, you know, to watch that stuff, the patience that you have, I mean, it's incredible. Nothing, nothing, nothing is worse than fruit picked early. Nothing's nastier than biting when you're really hungry to bite into an apple and you want the thing to be sweet and it's just... Patience produces sweetness and life in every area. It's, we need to be patient about everything. But the servant of the Lord, it says, must be patient. And the service of intercession requires absolute patience. But the servant of the Lord must be patient, it says. Apt to teach, instructing others who oppose themselves that peradventure they will actually see the truth, acknowledge the truth, and recover themselves from the snare of the devil, take some captive. I've got several passages of Scripture down here in patience that we won't go to, but I'll just reference them each. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, where basically it talks about patience worketh hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, and so on, endurance. But, I mean, you need to read these for yourself. Romans 12, 12 is the one that says we need to be rejoicing in hope. We need to be patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, patient in tribulation. How many of you are patient in the midst of tribulation? Don't lie. <laughs> Better not be anybody lift their hand. <laughs> None of us are that patient in tribulation. Like I said, I want out now. Romans 15, 4. You live through the steadfast, patient endurance and the encouragement that's drawn from the Scriptures. Uh, I, w I would like to pre I like to preach that verse a lot because it's so simple again. It's what I say over and over, over again. You draw forth strength. You draw forth encouragement from the Scriptures. God help us. Again, I'm sorry, but God help us. I know that you want people to encourage you. I like it when people encourage me, but I can't afford to wait for you to come encourage me. Do you know what I mean? Why do I even wait for that when I know I can go every single day and I can have a personal audience with the Creator of all heaven and earth? And I guarantee, you know, the thing about God is that's amazing is, listen to me, He will never discourage you. He always encourages you. You tell me He discouraged you and I'll call you a liar to your face. I'll do it in love. <laughs> but God never discourages. God only encourages. Everything about Him is encouraging. That's His nature. He does, discouragement's not in Him. Hebrews 6.12 says, of course, we're to be followers of who? You want to know who to follow? The Bible says be followers of those who, through faith and patience, are inheriting the promises. You won't inherit the promises of God without this fruit of the Spirit, this patience. Hebrews 12.1 sounds interesting when you say it all the time, the simplicity of it. It says we're to run this race with patience. And again, the analogy there is because uh, that you've probably heard it preached on a thousand times is what the Christian life is. We are not a hundred yard dash, a hundred meter dash. All the analogies to these races that we run are, are speaking to marathons. You run this race with patience. It's not a flat out, <gasps> it's patient. This is why it's like, you know, the whole idea of prayer and any form of warfare, a wise man counts the cost before he goes to war. I mean, you sit down and consider if you have what it takes before you enter into it. But the issue is patience. The issue is you have to possess yourself. You have to possess your own soul. Jesus said that. He said you need to possess your own soul with patience. James, in fact, let's, let me turn to James 1, just anyhow. Let me read that one real quick. I'll try to read it real quick. James, it's right after, right after uh, Hebrews, well, really right after... No, right after Hebrews, I'm sorry. James 1, it says, I'll read verse 1. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered abroad among the Gentiles in the dispersion. Greetings. Rejoice. That's what it says. Rejoice. Verse 2. Consider it holy, holy, W-H-O-L-O-Y. Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Now, you know, I remember the first years of my Christianity when I heard this preached to me, and you sit back and go, well, this is nuts. But yet, you see, it's a spiritual force. It's joy is a spiritual force. Happiness is a soulish emotion. Joy is a spiritual force. And the word count is an accounting term. Literally, it means to add up all of your trials, remember. Draw a line under them and let them equal joy. <laughs> because, you see, just think about it. Trials, you will either grow stronger through trials or hell's desire is that you have your faith destroyed through a trial. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Better remember, he said, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world of the power to harm you. See, you've got to have the right attitude. Attitude is a big deal in Christianity. You know, there's nothing worse than people that always have a stinking rotten attitude you ever been around people that always got a stinking attitude? I mean, they're not pleasant people to be with, are they? Always mumbling, griping, complaining about something. I mean, all they got is a bad report. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Drives you nuts, you know? You want to lay hands on them suddenly. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just, you do. You just want to, you know, give them, a, give them five-fold fellowship, five-finger fellowship. But he said, considered wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations, be assured, verse 3 says, and understand that the trial and the proving of your faith brings out endurance and steadfastness and patience. But listen to verse 4. Really listen to verse 4. Now King James says, but let patience have her perfect work. Amplified says, but let patience and let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work so that you may be people perfectly and fully developed with no defects, lacking in nothing. And you tell me that patience isn't important. But see again, what sometimes people are trying to get out of something quicker than they need to get out of. I, you know, it's, that's, it sounds so contradictory to some of the things that we, other things we teach, because God wants you free. He wants you free now. But the fact is, He wants you free forever. And you know, it's like, uh, well, you know who Dr. James Dobson is. You know, focus on the family. He said, one of the greatest tragedies of parenting Dobson said, is that we deliver our children from the consequences of their actions. Where God has ordained because of the hard-heartedness and the hard-headedness and the stubbornness and the stiff-neckedness of, of us and how all children are, God has ordained that consequences be one of the greatest teachers that you will ever have. Trust me. Trust me. Once you do something stupid with the knife and cut yourself, you'll not be stupid again. That consequence, I can tell you don't do that, and you'll, but once you feel the pain, that's the consequence of that will keep you from doing it again far more than my words. Now, God's best is what? Be obedient. Obedience is better than sacrifice. But the point is, we often deliver people. In fact, I could go to Proverbs and show you three or four places where it says, you know, if you deliver a person from such and such, you'll cause him to, be, to feel free to do it again. And sometimes, you see, we're so busy being merciful that we don't let people experience the result of their transgression. Now, that may sound like I said totally opposite, but I'm trying to say something. You need to be patient. You need to be patient in the midst of this tribulation, this trial. When God's called you to intercede for a situation, you're going to have to understand patience because people will not bend in the shape that you want them to. Situations will not automatically bend, but we have a promise from God that if we let patience have her perfect work in our lives, if we will let patience have full play, I love how it says it in the Amplified, if we'll let patience have its full play, 
says, then you'll become a person who is perfectly developed without defects, not lacking in anything. God help us be patient. Really. Learn the art, the skill of patience. But again, don't keep, I don't want to go into the consequences. I want you to remember that thing that Dobson said. One of the greatest sins we make as parents is we deliver our kids from consequences. So God's a pretty good father. And this is why some things he lets you experience. It's not his will. He never wanted it to happen, but we were hard-headed. And he won't take away the pain sometimes that quick from stupid decisions because he wants you to understand, don't do it again. Now, if he senses that depth in your spirit where you're actually saying, God, I have learned my lesson and he sees that you mean it, then freedom comes so much quicker other things because he sees. Because sometimes, like it says here, if any man fall, and King James says, any man fall into temptation and trial. And the word fall means to be overtaken, uh, caught off guard. In other words, you did not intentionally set out to make this mistake, but you made it nevertheless because you were caught off guard. Anyhow. Then he goes on, if any of you is deficient in wisdom, let him ask of the giving God who gives to everyone liberally and ungrudgingly without reproaching or fault finding and it will be given him. Only it must be in faith that he asks with no wavering, no hesitating, no doubting. For the one who wavers, who hesitates and doubts is like the billowing surge out at sea that is blown hither and thither and tossed by the wind. For truly let not such a person imagine that he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. For being as he is a man of two minds, hesitating, dubious, irresolute, he is unstable, unreliable, uncertain about everything he thinks and feels and decides. So that's an incredible, important passage, isn't it, as well? Whatever you ask for, you must ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wind of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Don't be double-minded. Be single-minded. That's where patience comes in as well. If you find out what the will of God is, hold fast to it. He comes on down to verse 12. I'll read that, then we'll move on. Blessed, happy, to be envied is the man who is patient under trial and stands up under temptation. For when he has stood the test and been approved, he will receive the victor's crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Hallelujah. Patience. Let patience have a perfect work. James chapter 5 in the outline simply says, well, actually, I'll read that one too just real quick. There's two verses, James 5, verse 7 and 8, because I, I, I just love the character of our Father. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says this. So be patient, brethren, as you wait till the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits expectantly for the precious harvest from the land. See how he keeps up his patient vigil over it until it receives the early and late rains. So you also must be patient. Establish your hearts. Strengthen and confirm them in the final certainty. For the coming of the Lord is very near. Hallelujah. Amen. But you know, you read this in the King James and others, and it speaks about the father, the husbandman. It speaks of, the, of God himself about how patient the father is as he's waiting for the latter and the former rain. He's waiting for this precious harvest. Hallelujah. So the question is there, how can I cultivate greater patience in my life? Well, just say, God, now this is what's wonderful about the Lord. If you pray this prayer, Father, give me patience. Teach me patience. Guess what you get? Trials and tribulations. How many of you want to be patient? How many of you already have the opportunity right now? You don't need to pray it. <laughs> you know, that's right. Hallelujah. You've already got enough. You can be patient now. Don't pray for more patience. Say, I'm going to learn patience now, right now. I'm learning patience. Exodus 32, verse 1 of the Amplified, the boldness of Moses. When the people saw that Moses delayed, and here again we can see how it relates right back to, to patience. The people of God are down at the bottom of the mount while Moses is up on top of the mountain. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
make us gods. Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Next paragraph. People do not want to wait for the word of the Lord. Their nature is to want something that is in front of them now, something that is visible, available, touchable. God, however, is a spirit. And those who, will, who worship him must worship him in spirit. And you see, again, God help us to become people of the spirit. You have to know that heaven, remember, all the teaching I used to do on spiritual work, heaven is the real place. Remember the Father is the Spirit. Remember the Spirit realm, therefore, is where everything's real. Remember? Really, really, really. See, I know you're all nodding your head like obedient little puppies. But, but the Spirit realm is where everything's real. We live, we are the creation. That realm is the realm of the creator. Listen to that. Listen. The realm where the creator is, is the Spirit realm. The spirit realm is the original, the parent realm. We're the creation. This is not reality if you were able right now to compare it to that which is reality. Now, can your minds hear what I'm saying? That realm is where it's real. This is the created realm. That realm made this. This realm didn't make that. That realm made this. Everything... See, we can't see into the realm of the Spirit, so we sometimes don't think anything's happening there, but that's where everything's happening because that's reality. So we have this covenant with God that today, this is what I mean, you have to have connectivity. You have to connect. You have to understand. You can't be moved by what you see. You have to be patient. You have to know that when you say, Father, He's a Spirit. You can't see Him, but He's there. Father, in the name of Jesus, like God said to me all those years ago, the moment you speak that name in faith, all of heaven stands at attention to hear the next words that you speak. You have to know that when you prayed in faith, that when you've said and you've said amen to a situation, that angels, spirit beings, things are happening. They're rushing to and fro across this universe. Things are being pushed around, maneuvered, put into position. Puzzle pieces are coming together. Hallelujah. When you say amen, so be it. See, you need to mean it because it's happening. Again, you get spoken louder to by the circumstance and then you abort the work because they stop because they can only work through faith. God help us hear that. Yes. That realm only works through faith. Ministry spirits are simply obedient spirits. Those, they're up there. They're waiting right now. You've got angels, tons of angels already assigned to your life that are waiting for you to stay steadfast. Just waiting for you to be constant in your faith. And you just have to know, you see, you don't see anything happening at all in the, in the natural, but you've got to know that you know that you know that you know. Man, there is activity there. Hallelujah. I love the scripture that says, God is all the while at work exercising his superhuman power in those who believe. And because I'm a believer, you see, I believe, because I'm a believer, I know that God is exercising his superhuman. See, I can only do my human part. He does the superhuman part. I do the natural. He takes care of the supernatural. Exodus 32, 7 through 14. I'll just read it real quick. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out to the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Anybody ever had a stiff neck? What's it mean? It means a stiff neck. It means you won't turn. You just set yourself towards this path. God says in verse 10, God says... Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may destroy them, but I will make of you a great nation. But Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath blaze hot against your people whom you brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say for evil he brought them forth to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and change your mind. 
concerning this evil against your people. Earnestly remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. What's verse 14 say? Then the Lord turned from the evil which he had thought to do to his people. And I just wrote down in my own notes, amazing. Father, we thank you for your, this amazing covenant that we have where you're looking and longing for somebody to come to you that understands what your will is so that judgment can be averted. So I just pray that you'd help us have a fixed and an established heart, a fixed mind, a steadfast spirit, and people that would actually know that when we pray that something's happening, God forgive us for being so attached to this planet. Help us set our affections on things above. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.